I'm going to make a parallel today between Joseph and another historical figure, someone who is absolutely brilliant, someone who becomes a brilliant administrator, someone who is either in denial of their Jewishness or has it completely repressed like Joseph, someone who saves the country, and someone who does so by inventing an instrument of very morally dubious implications. In Miketz, our hero goes from Yosef, the imprisoned Hebrew slave, often just referred to without name, by the way. He's always just that Hebrew, that Hebrew. Just another Hebrew slave to Zafnath Panea, the clean-shaven, Egyptian-looking viceroy of Egypt. The transformation of Yosef's look and name is necessary, for otherwise the possibility of his holding the position would be laughable. The change of look, the change of dress, which is specified in Torah, the change of name, presumably, if not the change of religion, at least the appearance of his own, the God of his mothers and fathers, not mattering, as he matters the daughter of a priest of On, are necessary costs of that acceptance. Genesis 41, 38, and Pharaoh said to his courtiers, could we find, could we find, could we, let's put it this way, could we find another like him, a man with that divine spirit? Pharaoh's challenging the courtiers and magicians, he would choose an Egyptian to fulfill the vital national role of navigating this national challenge, if there was one, if there were one, but there isn't. Nachmanides Ramban comments on this, what does it mean? Can we find such a one as this? Come on. It's because he was a Hebrew, the members of which race were repugnant to the Egyptians. They wouldn't even eat of the things the Hebrews touched or have any contacts with them as they considered them unclean. And Pharaoh did not want to appoint Joseph Viceroy without their permission. Therefore, he said to them that they, would, you know, that they wouldn't find any Egyptian comparable to him as the spirit of God is in him. In the Midrashic work Sefer Hayashar, there's a, there's a further elaborated legend. These princes all complained at the, for this verse. The princes all complained about Yosef's appointment, citing a law that any king second in command must know all of the 70 languages. And this is just a Hebrew who really just knows the language of Hebrew. So that night, an angel taught him all of the languages, and he woke up knowing them all. And that's when Pharaoh changes his name. It's kind of like the Matrix. Instead of him waking up and saying, I know Kung Fu, Yosef wakes up and says, I know 70 languages fluently. And that's at the point in the story. He is shaven, changes his clothes. He gets his new name, his new wife, and his new life. Verse 45, Pharaoh then gave Yosef the name Zafna Panea, and he gave from a wife, Asna, daughter of Potiphera, priest of Potiphera, priest of On. And thus Yosef emerged in charge of the land of Egypt. So here we have the new look, Yosef, viceroy of Egypt, not the nameless Hebrew, but Zafna Panea, now clean shaven, dressed as an Egyptian, wife Asnat. And Yosef passes on the ambiguity of the transformation to his children in their names. Yosef named the firstborn, firstborn Menashe, meaning God has made me forget completely my hardship and my parents' home. And the second name Ephraim, meaning God has made me fertile in the land of my affliction. The price of getting out of hardship and affliction is forgetting completely his parental home, the life of his parents. Interestingly, with all the parallels among the patriarchal and matriarchal narratives, this actually begins a new motif 
If you can find it earlier, tell me. Avraham, Yitzchak, Sarah, Rivka, Leah, none of them are mistaken for a local, right? The Hittites are never looking at Avraham being like, wait, are you around here? You can, we can sell you that cave. I mean, it's clear he's a foreigner. Yosef looks assimilated, a motif which repeats shortly with Moshe, who is sometimes taken for an Egyptian and sometimes allows that mistake to take place, though he never actively denies being a Hebrew. That's the new motif. It even results in the ambivalent names of Moshe's children. He is a foreigner in a foreign land, which could mean a Hebrew in Egypt, but it could also mean an Egyptian in Midian, since the text says that the Midianites believe he's Egyptian, and it doesn't say he corrects them. The parasha of Yosef's assimilation often, or almost always, occurs on the Shabbat of Hanukkah, a holiday that commemorates the double war both against unwilling and willing assimilation. And so here we have Yosef. Does he want to look Egyptian? Does he want to forget the ways of his people? The text doesn't say. It, simply, it, does, it does imply that Hebrews don't get justice against false accusation, the kind that gets thrown, him thrown in prison. He may be raised back up, but he never gets justice for the false accusation. It does make clear that one who looks to Hebrew does not get to head up a government agency in charge of saving the country from imminent catastrophe. One must look the part. Yosef, or... Zafnat Panea is the one who does. Okay, here's, here's my parallel. You'll tell me later if, if you got it. This week, it is hard not to be reminded of Yosef when the news was filled with a Jew in our time who certainly did not look or sound Jewish, and because of that, could fit the bill of heading up the government project that saved this nation. In so doing, like Yosef, he heralded in a new system that by saving the world, also heralded in an era of great moral ambiguity. As Yosef had invented the economic system of citizen serfdom, and in so doing saved the people, but at questionable cost that we still wonder about today. So this man saved America, but through a system whose cost we still wonder about today. And to make the parallel even more clear, this modern Zafnat Panea suffered great hardship as the text says, due to a false accusation that was likely connected to his Jewish identity, an identity that he had left behind. I'm speaking of J. Robert Oppenheimer, born in New York City in 1904 to Ella Friedman and Julius Seligman Oppenheimer. Julius came to the United States with nothing and suffered like the Midrash from Sefer Hayashar. He suffered terribly from the fact that he did not know English. He could not speak the language and yet nevertheless made his way up quickly in the, and came with nothing in the textile industry and was quickly living on Riverside Drive with Picassos and at least three Van Goghs on his wall. Leaving their Judaism behind as such, Robert was raised in the Ethical Cultural Society School in the movement that saw proper religion as the embrace and practice of ethical principles only without any trace of religious or inherited cultural content the home of his father's. No trace. Robert attended the best schools, graduated Harvard Phi Beta Kappa. He was tall. He was thin. Like Yosef, the text tells us, one of the only people, him and, well, baby Moshe gets it. Extremely handsome and extremely well-bred. His scientific work in nuclear physics is, of course, legendary, including his predictions of the neutron, meson, and neutron star. In a famous picture of himself and Einstein, one sees the quintessential disheveled Jewish genius 
sitting next, he's totally disheveled and all that hair, Einstein, sitting next to the ultimate clean-shaven, superbly coiffed, tall and handsome Gentile. His charities, because he inherited quite a bit of money, were not the Jewish ones. Left his money to the University of California. In his lifetime, he gave his, his children were named Peter and Catherine. In June of 1942, with our country facing the possibility of entering and losing the Second World War, Roosevelt established the Manhattan Project to save, in a sense, the world through developing an atomic bomb. Oppenheimer, not the most Jewish of names, sounds like a hero from World War I Germany. Oppenheimer was appointed the viceroy of the project. According to New York Times this week, he first had difficulty with the organizational division of large groups. He's in charge of the national project, requires enormous administration skills, but he rapidly learned the art of large-scale administration, Joseph's uh, forte. After he took up permanent residence on the Mesa, he was noted for his mastery of all scientific aspects of the project, his efforts to control the inevitable cultural conflicts between scientists and the military. He was an iconic figure to the other scientists as much as a symbol of what they were working toward as a scientific director. Victor Weisskopf put it, quote, Oppenheimer directed these studies, theoretical and experimental in the real sense of the words. His uncanny speed in grasping the main points of any subject was a decisive factor. Had the spirit of God upon him. He could acquaint himself with the essential details of every part of the work. He did not direct from the head office. It says that Yosef went around in the chariot. He was present in the laboratory, in the seminar rooms, when a new effect was measured, a new idea was conceived. It was not that he contributed so many ideas or suggestions. He did so sometimes, but his main influence came from something else. It was his continuous and intense presence, which produced a sense of direct participation in all of us. It created that unique atmosphere of enthusiasm and challenge that pervaded the place through its time, unquote. When the experimental detonation was successful, Oppenheimer named the site Trinity, not after the three Torah scrolls of Hanukkah, but after one of John Donne's, as he put it, holy sonnets. But he and many of the project staff were very upset about the bombing of Nagasaki, raised up the moral ambiguity of what was heralded into the world and birthed through this man, as they did not feel the second bomb was necessary from a military perspective. And so he went directly to Washington on August 17th to hand deliver a letter Secretary of War Henry Stimson expressing his revulsion and his wish to see nuclear weapons banned. In October of 1945, he granted an interview. He was granted an interview with President Truman. The meeting went very badly. Oppenheimer said he felt he had blood on his hands. The remark infuriated Truman and put an end to the meeting. Truman later told Undersecretary of State Dean Acheson, I don't want, oh, sorry, I can't say it from the BEMA. I don't want to see that son of a, this in this office ever again. And then the accusation. In April and May of 1954, after 19 days of secret hearings, the Atomic Energy Commission revoked Oppenheimer's security clearance. The action blocked Oppenheimer's access to the government's atomic secrets and brought his career to a humiliating end. We're reminded of what we will get at the beginning of Shemot. And the, the Pharaoh did not know Yosef. What does it mean the Pharaoh didn't know Yosef who had saved Egypt? The Pharaoh did not want to acknowledge the accomplishments of Yosef or include him in the heritage of the country. The action blocked his access to government's um, secrets. It brought his career to a humiliating end. Until then, a hero of American science, he lived out 
his life as a broken man and died in 1967 at the age of 62. In 2014, the Obama administration made public hundreds of newly declassified pages from the commission's secret hearings. The crazy thing, as you may know from uh, documentaries or from reading New York Times, is that what the Obama administration made public is that in the hearings, it was extremely clear that he was not a part of the Communist Party and he had actually done nothing wrong. They looked at his, the testimony actually exonerated him. They had shown that he had been anything but disloyal. This week, the Secretary of Energy on Friday nullified a 1954 decision to revoke the security clearance of Oppenheimer, a top government scientist who had fell, who had fallen under suspicion of being a Soviet spy at the height of the McCarthy era. In a statement a week ago, the Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said the decision of her predecessor agency, the Atomic Energy Commission, to bar Oppenheimer's clearance was the result of a flawed process that violated its own regulations. As time has passed, she added, more evidence has come to light of the bias and unfairness of the process that Dr. Oppenheimer was subjected to, while the evidence of his loyalty and love of country have only been further affirmed. In a way, although looking Zafna Panea never escaped the association of Jews with communism, which is so much of the accusations that Joseph was never forgiven or exonerated for the accusation that landed him in jail, and we thank God this week, Oppenheimer, perhaps through a story appropriate for the ambivalence of Hanukkah, is exonerated for his. Shabbat Shalom.